not going to be meeting next week in the evening because there's this thing called the Super Bowl. It's kind of a big deal in America, you know what I'm saying? So uh, we're not going to do that because it happens around the same time as our service, but we will be having the evening service for the remainder of the month of uh, February. So, hey, look, we are going to talk about a hard topic tonight, um, but I want you, we're going to jump back into Revelation, and it is uh, basically the belly of the beast. I mean, we're jumping back into one of the hardest chapters in Scripture to uh, digest, and it's, it's about hell. Um, but I want to encourage you to uh, pay attention to the details of this text and pay attention to maybe the harder, the harder parts of the aspects of God that you have a hard time thinking about. Because the more you peer into them, this is what happened to me this week. Um, the, the more I looked at the hard stuff, uh, the more I found Jesus beautiful. The more I saw his love uh, becoming even more deep for, for me and for those that are in him. And so that's what this passage is about. We are not going to get to like the pleasant parts of Revelation for several weeks, um, but uh, it's worth it. It's worth it to, to read this stuff because this is God's word revealed to you um, as it was to these seven churches back in the first century. And so this is God's word to you tonight. Uh, this is the Apostle John seeing a vision. He said, then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night. These worshipers of the beast in its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. This is sort of an interlude, a parenthesis to that. Here's a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. Then I looked and behold a white cloud and seated on a cloud, one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he sat on the cloud and swung his sickle across the earth and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle. Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress 
as high as a horse's bridle for 1600 stadia. It's our practice here to pray before I preach. And what that means is that we're, we're engaging in the spiritual realm. And we believe here uh, that the spiritual realm is just as real as what you experience today in the flesh. And so what's happening in the spiritual realm, if you could pull the veil back, is stuff like what we just read. And everything in our life um, seeks to draw our attention away from that reality. Um, and we're going to talk about that tonight. And so as you pray, just know that you are engaging in something spiritual. You're always engaging in something et eternal. Uh, we're eternal creatures. And so um, the reason why I'm saying that is don't, don't unplug and just let me pray. You pray too. So let's sit, sit in silence and pray. Father, as we think about passages like this, it's very easy to uh, uh, miss Jesus, honestly. And so I ask that he would be front and center. I know firsthand that passages like this have been used in the church uh, by people who hold positions like I hold now um, to hurt people, to uh, cause fear that is unwarranted. Um, and so, Lord, I ask that you would protect me from that, um, but that you would also protect me from uh, shielding your people from what you have, have said and how you've revealed yourself uh, in the Bible. And so would you do that, Lord, please guide us by the Holy Spirit. And uh, we trust that you will. You do it every single week. And so uh, we pray this in Jesus name. Amen. So uh, we're going to talk about hell tonight. We're going to talk about the hang ups of hell the experience of hell, the logic of hell, and the love of hell, which spells hell, by the way, if you're following the acronym. And so uh, I want to talk first about, about the hangups. I know many of you struggle with the doctrine of hell. It's not something that you sit around wanting to think about all the time. And every time uh, I talk about this from the pulpit, like judgment, wrath of God, hell, I always get some pushback. And uh, the pushback usually goes like this. Uh, Matt, I don't like this doctrine. This is the, the one of the things that I really have a hard time getting behind uh, with the, what the church teaches. And it, it, uh, it concerns me a little bit. And I'm always a little encouraged by that response, because if you're not like a little alarmed by what I just read, um, you're probably not paying attention. C.S. Lewis says that the doctrine of hell was a repugnant doctrine to him. But the reason why he believed it is because it was in Scripture. And you cannot read Scripture, the Old Testament or the New Testament, without almost every page coming into contact with the judgment of God. And the, the person who talked about judgment and the wrath of God in hell most was Jesus himself, if you read the Gospels. But Jesus was also deeply, he was deeply troubled. He was a man of sorrows because of the ramifications of sin and evil on uh, the world and on the people in the world. In seminary, I learned this really helpful um, distinction that, that several of my professors said, you know, the other side of the coin of salvation is damnation. And that's really clear in Scripture. The other side of the coin of blessing is, is curse, the, the covenant curses. And the reason why that's the case is because God, within his character, his very name, he is both merciful and just. 
and he will be that way forever. Now, that kind of throws some of us off in, in the West, especially because we don't, we don't suffer. Um, we, we don't get killed for our faith. Um, like these Christians here in the first century, you know, some of their children, some of their parents were taken from them and, and burned to death in front of them. And they had the courage to face that. And so if, you're, if you are here tonight and you're like, I don't understand why you need to believe in an afterlife to enjoy this life. Um, that's a pretty modern approach to thinking about your existence and to thinking about eternity. The reason why it's important um, to attest to the reality of hell for, for the church is simply that it, it's real. And scripture teaches that it's real, whether you suffer or not in, in this life. And so we don't have to like it, but we, we do have to assent to what God says about himself in the cosmos because we trust it even when it doesn't feel like something good to talk about. So the reason why that's important to state up front um, is because believing in hell is really a question of how we know things. There are many things that we don't like and would prefer not to think about. Uh, but part of the reason we open up the, the Bible is that it really is. It was written over two millennia and has been relevant to every culture ever since. And it transcends people, groups, tribes and nations and times. And, and, and it's true in its entirety. And Paul, the Apostle Paul says, you need to preach the whole counsel of God, every part of it, even the parts that are hard to understand even the parts that rub you the wrong way. And, and there's going to be a lot of stuff in the Bible that rub each culture the wrong way. And this is one of those doctrines for us. Now, the second thing before we jump into the text that I, I want to address is the fact that justice, judgment, and even God's wrath, I, I think Scripture teaches that it's written into our hearts, into the very DNA of what it means to be a human being. I've had many uh, Christian friends I grew up with who, who have left the faith and no longer claim to be Christians. And uh, part of why they left the faith is because of doctrines like this. And, and they'll claim, they'll claim that they're leaving Christian doctrine behind and doing something different. And a lot of times what, what they turn into is like super, super puritanical, dogmatic about stuff like politics they're, they're super, uh, super concerned about justice. And I'm actually encouraged by that uh, because it affirms the other parts of Scripture that says you, you can run away from God all you want. But his laws, his justice is encoded in your heart. And what it means to be a human being in God's image is that when you see something that's wrong, you want to make it right. And that's what justice is about. That's what hell is about. Punishment for wrongdoing. The reason why um, Christianity is so attractive is because Jesus, Revelation says this, Jesus is the only one worthy to actually enact that type of justice and judgment. He was the only one worthy to, to open up the seals of God's eternal decree to fix the whole world. And the reason why is because he's a, he's a lamb. 
He was willing to sacrifice for us. So in, in Scripture, we see a, a God who hates evil, but he loves to save people from evil. Um, and if you have a loving God without justice, he's just weak and useless. And if you have a just God without love, he's too harsh. And Christianity gives you both, which is exactly what we need in this world. And so we're going to start from that premise that hell is a reality as real as what we're experiencing right now. And we come to a chapter in the Bible that is, I mean, it's the quintessential hell chapter. It's a fire and brimstone passage. Um, and we're going to look at it in detail. So here we go. The, what is it like to experience hell? Look at your text. You have three angels announcing a type of judgment in the first section. And then you've got an interlude in, in verses 12 and 13. And then you have two uh, depictions of what the judgment is going to be like where John's using harvest language. He's harvesting the earth and pressing these grapes that are symbolic of what it's going to be like when the wrath and the judgment of God come. And uh, we see that in, in all of that, that uh, God's judgment is going to be complete and comprehensive uh, in scope and eternal in duration. And I, I want to explore that with you. So look at verse 6 and 7. This first angel flies over John's head, which must have been scary. Um, and he's proclaiming what's called the eternal gospel. Now, what's, what is the gospel? The gospel is that God, who is king over the world, sent his son into the world to redeem, resurrect, and renew everything. And he did that through Jesus' death. And through Jesus' death, he defeated death through resurrection and, and began the, invert, the inversion of everything in this world is decaying. But in Jesus, he, he created a new type of humanity that if you're united to him, you begin to participate in your eternal reality the moment you believe in him. That's the gospel that Jesus is, has begun to fix everything and it'll come to a completion at the final day. So that's the first angel. The second angel, verse 8, starts yelling, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Now, we're going to talk about more of what Babylon means symbolically next week. But Babylon is the beast's city, Satan's city. And it's representative of every city set in opposition to God's kingship throughout all ages. And this city uh, is seductive. Um, and she uses her uh, allure to um, seduce human beings in every age to worship the things of creation as opposed to God, which is what sexual immorality in the Bible is symbolic of, that we all tend to uh, cheat on God is what idolatry means. Now, more on this next week, but that's what this angel is yelling out. And, and this angel says, that city is about to fall. And then the third angel, and, the, and this, is, um, this one's hard, verses, verses 9 through 11, says that those who belong to this city who, who received the mark on their head and hand and worshiped the beast, um, they're going to suffer forever. And the image here is that in the past, the wrath of God uh, was diluted. 
Back in the day, they used to cut the wine with water to make it last longer. And this picture here is wine that hasn't been cut. It's so potent. It's not been mixed with anything, and it will be more terrible than anything the world has ever seen when it comes. And the torment of people will be like smoke that goes up to God forever and their anguish will continue and they will never have rest. Many of us know um, people who aren't Christians. Some of you may not be Christians here today. This is one of the most offensive things you could possibly hear. This is what the world says is destructive about religion to import stuff like this into the world. Ideologies like this makes people hate themselves, makes people afraid. The interlude here, I think, is helpful because the, the more we stare at that, I think the Bible knows us so well that it gives us a pause and says, but this is what's true of those who belong to God. In verses 12 and 13, we have this sort of parentheses where John sees the saints of God actually do have rest when they die. When they die in the Lord. They enter their true rest when they're in Christ and their good works follow them. That's not, that, that doesn't mean that they get into God's presence so they have rest because of their good works, but they get into to heaven in the Lord. But the things that they do matter eternally. And if you just think about it for a moment, that's what you need to hear when you're suffering, which is what these Christians were doing. Like, what, what would be the point in sacrificing myself for another person? What would be the point in even doing anything good? Um, because it's obviously not making a difference in the world. And John says, hold on. I know it's not going to make sense here. It will in eternity. That's what John is saying. He says, you must follow Jesus, which means that you and I, we participate in our eternal reality every moment. That you are either assenting to the beast in his city or you are living in acknowledgement of God and his kingdom. And those things continue on forever. There's a, uh, a Eugene Peterson quote that Jen sent out with the liturgy in the email. I'd encourage you to read it uh, later. But it talks more about this. Now, remember, John is talking to these seven churches, and he's a pastor now. He's a pastor of these seven churches. And what he sees, I know it's hard. hard. Rome is killing you. And they seem so uh, at rest in their torture of you. But the roles are about to reverse. The moment that you die, you get your rest. So keep believing and uh, persevere. Some of you maybe have read uh, John Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath. You know, that phrase, Grapes of Wrath, is coming from this passage here. And it's about these migrant uh, farm farmers who were trying to escape the Dust Bowl in the early 20th century. It, there, it was a terrible time, the Dust Bowl. And um, they were running away from it to California because they heard that there was some farming that you could make money farming some, some oranges out there. 
And when they got to California, what they realized is that their situation in California was way more harsh than the dust. And it just ends terribly. Um, <laughs> you guys should read Beards of Wrath if you want a, a nice cry. Um, but they were trying to get away from their circumstances only to rush into a harsher one. And that's what John is saying. He's saying, don't churches, do not give up in belief. Don't do it. Don't run away from something into something that's going to be even harsher. You can handle the wrath of the beast now. What you can't handle is the wrath of the lamb. It will be unbearable. Now, what, what does this mean for us? Um, the, you do, as a Christian, um, you don't have to walk around this world like happy all the time. You don't have to like, like your circumstances. But Christians throughout the centuries have always been ones who accept their circumstances because they believe in God's sovereign care of their life, but, but also they accept their circumstances, especially when they're harsh, because they know that judgment is coming. And again, think about somebody who's suffering and how much that would be uh, good news to them. These Christians could have peace in the midst of torture precisely because they believed that those who were torturing them were going to be judged when it was all said and done. This has uh, clear evidence in even non-biblical sources in the first and second century in, in Rome. This is a big reason why Christianity exploded in the early church time period because of how courageous these Christians were when they faced suffering, when they faced plagues and injustice and oppression. And I think part of what this means for us today is that we should always advocate for those who are poor, for those who are suffering and oppressed in any society. But it's pretty clear uh, throughout Scripture um, when, when, we, when Christians are the ones that are being mistreated by those in positions of power over us um, to insist on our rights and, and to demand it. Uh, could very well point to a failure to believe in justice and judgment. That we don't actually think it's true. And so we got to demand it right now. Christians are best known in the world when we care more for the rights of others at the expense of our own. And the call of John to these seven churches as they faced the terror of Rome was to know uh, Jesus is going to win and to, to not stop believing even if they're faced with death. Now look at this last section in verses 14 through 20. The, the reaping of the harvest comes in the first, the first uh, you know, this large sickle is being used. It's real creepy looking. Um, and then in, in verses 19 through 20, um, what we see is probably the most gruesome picture of all. And it is the image of people being pressed like grapes through a strainer. And there's so much wrath and death that the blood flows for nearly 200 miles up to a horse's belly or bridle. Now, again, uh, this is symbolic. It's apocalyptic language, symbolic. But I don't want to water it down. Symbols point to a greater reality. 
and the image of this cup of wrath. That's what this is. It's the full cup of God's wrath being poured out on the world. Um, it's found in various places in the Old Testament. What it represents is God's final and totally complete extermination of evil. When it will be done. And it is so brutal and thorough that we could never even possibly imagine how awful it's going to be. The idea is that things like the Holocaust um, are like one tiny grape in this large bowl of condemnation of evil. And uh, here's the kicker in why this is actually a part of the gospel. Jesus said something the night when he was in Gethsemane, right before he went to the cross. He said something that won't make sense unless you know about these images. And he said, God, Father, please let this cup pass for me. I don't want to drink it. This is the cup that he was talking about. The brutality of God's judgment over evil is exactly what Jesus drank into himself as he embraced all of the suffering for his people. That's what he did for you. That's what he did for me. You know, earlier this week, uh, it's, so, it's so easy to just like, let's just go to Instagram, let's go to sports. I don't want to touch that, you know. And I, and I made myself. On Monday or Tuesday, I said, no, I, no I'm going to sit here and think about this. I'm a pastor. This is what pastors do. They meditate on scripture. I'm going to do it. And I'm not kidding, y'all. I, I tried to do it for like 20 minutes and I got nauseous. Like it made me like want to throw up thinking about this. And I just want to tell you, that's what it's supposed to do. The scriptures push you to a place where you don't know what to do emotionally, physically, and it pushes you to a place to say, I need some help outside of myself. And that's where we're supposed to be as creatures. That's, the, that's actually the first step towards repentance outside of the city of Babylon to say, God, I, I don't want control over my life. I need you because my inclinations are self-destructed and ultimately delusional in the end. And once you see that, the, the beauty of actually admitting that is that your perspective on unwanted circumstances, change, it changes in your life. That you begin to see the roadblocks or like stuff that you don't want in your life could actually be preventing you from entering this terror. Um, and it's because there's a lot a logic to hell. When, um, when I grew up in Lincolnton, Georgia... Uh, when young boys would get caught smoking cigarettes, their dad's cigarettes, um, what would happen is that your dad would take you to the gas station and buy you a whole pack, and he would sit you down, and he would light one for you, and he would say, you like cigarettes, huh? Well, why don't you smoke this one? And then you're going to smoke the whole pack, one after the other, until you throw up. That's the type of judgment that I grew, <laughs> I grew up with. Um, the terror of the wrath of God is him one day saying, this is what you want? You want a life without me. 
God doesn't want that for you. But if you insist on it, he'll give it. He will let us follow our desires to their very end in this chapter showing us this is what unrepentance looks like in a million years. The, the, the anger, the gossip, the obsession with money, sexual immorality, the addiction. It, it could look small today, but this is what it looks like in a billion years. Blood for miles. Each act that we commit is an acknowledgement of God or a sin to the beast. That's what's at stake. Um, you know, we like we can change. I uh, I'm from the southeast. You guys know that most of you do. And I went back to visit my my home back there um, with my parents um, over the the holidays and. I have another friend from Salina, Kansas, who said he hates the Southeast because when he goes, he feels claustrophobic because of the trees and the, and the hills and stuff. And he's like, when, when I get back to Kansas, I'm like, oh, I can breathe again. Like, this is okay. Everything's going to be okay. Um, and I have uh, never understood that until last month. And I'm not kidding, y'all. Like, I, we got to Missouri. Sarah and I were driving through Missouri. We had such great windshield time. You know, our marriage grew deep. And, uh, and I realized something when, when I got from Missouri into Nebraska, like the sky opened up and I really did. I felt I'm like, oh, I'm like, I'm at home. Like I felt it in my body, like I relaxed. And I haven't been uh, in open skies, but for like 13 years. That, you know, like being home is like core to a human being's identity, like in your body. And if that can change for me just because of patterns in 13 years, what do you think is possible for us to turn into for good or bad in thousands of years? Here's how it plays out. Who, who in here checks their bank account? Too many times in one day. You know, like the number is going to change from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. Constantly worried about how much you got. You know, if that doesn't go checked, what, what's that going to grow into? This is just sort of obsession about being worried about the future. God's wrath is to give you over to your natural inclinations, logical outcome of total separation of God where human beings say, I'm going to live life exactly like I want, it, want to live it. And it's his grace to insert things that don't feel like grace. <laughs> they feel harsh. They hurt. To show us that we don't have control over anything and we ought to trust him and not be afraid. And that suffering can, it can be loving which is the uh, fourth and final point about hell, that it, what backs hell is God's love. Um, and y'all, I, this, this doctrine is very near and dear to my heart, and the reason why is because um, the night that I converted, when I was 17 years old, I had like an overnight conversion to Christianity. Like woke up where the sun was brighter type conversion. And the reason why is because my brother sat me down and he said to me, he said, Matt, I told God, that if you're going to hell, that I wanted him to send me instead. 
And it was genuine. And I didn't want it to be because I didn't want it. I, I didn't want to believe in it. But I, I, I could not deny it. And he wanted to save me from it, but he couldn't. But that's not what changed me. What, you know, the fear of judgment doesn't change people. What changed me was his sadness over the state of my soul. And I don't know if you've ever had anyone cry over your rebellion, uh, but it's eternal when somebody does that. If you want your spouse to change, um, don't focus on their behavior. Learn to mourn over their sin. It changes you. That's what Jesus did when he looked over the city. That's what Paul did when he was thinking about his Jewish brothers in Romans 9. He's like, I wish I could take their place. That's what my brother did for me. The point being, far from the wrath of God being a deterrent from people coming to know Jesus, in reality, we see the very heart of God's character and love as we contemplate judgment because when my brother told me, I asked God to send me instead, we all know it doesn't work that way. We can't substitute ourselves. God has reserved that for only one person to be the substitute, to get that kind of glory, and it's the Lamb. Jesus is the only one who could actually truly stand up to the bully, the true bully of this world. And this is what's so hard, y'all. Like This means that we have to look our children in the eyes and actually believe this and say, I, can't, I actually can't save you. I don't have any control over that. The people that we love the most. No control. We can't save them, but we know somebody who can. And we got to live like that's true. And people will feel it if you think that you can control the destiny of their soul. Look, what, what if you could go back and stand up for that little kid that just happened upon his dad's hidden porn stash when he was like six years old and shield that little boy from a life of an addiction that would spring up from that moment on. I, I bet there are things in your past that were totally out of your control that if you could go back and protect that little boy or protect that little girl from, from some evil that morphed into a life of sin and shame and failure that, that you would, you would step in and do it. But it doesn't work that way. Only God has the power to undo what has been done. All that went wrong, God is much more angry than you about how broken his world is. An intruder has come in and messed everything up, represented in the beast in his city. And this passage is saying that God will completely and thoroughly judge all the wickedness that polluted this world and got into the hearts of people and the righteous will bathe their feet in the blood of the wicked because they will like it because it's done. And the evidence that he'll do it is in Jesus Christ. Jesus is where we see God's perfectly consistent character as clear as we want to see it that his justice and mercy are perfectly seen, that his promises are upheld, even when we look into the very heart of hell 
at the bottom, what we see is the face of Jesus Christ who drank that cup for us so that we didn't have to, which is proven at this table that he loves you. Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you for, um, for going to the, deep, the deepest, darkest places for us and for not leaving us ever, for not leaving us alone. Uh, Lord, um, you take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And we, we need you, Lord. Um, we need you to give us the right demeanor to talk about these deep truths. We also need the right type of desperation and the right type of love for those in this town and those that we know that aren't in you yet. And Lord, I ask that if uh, you have placed on the hearts of your people certain folks who don't know you, Lord, help them to endure in prayer. Help them to love 